Greetings. It gives me tremendous pleasure to introduce you to the very first edition of If These Walls Could Talk. Hopefully, this is the beginning of an exciting journey and you're all welcomed with open arms. My name is Jeremy Newton. By day, I am the head of agency business at DLMDD, a sonic branding agency based in London. And by night, I'm a music obsessive, a DJ and a lover of history, amongst other things. Having been born and raised in London, I've always been fascinated and inspired by this city's contribution to music and culture. So much has taken place here that has affected and galvanised so many. Scenes from rave to rock and roll, from jazz to jungle, from punk to grime and everything in between. There is undoubtedly something in the somewhat polluted air that enables musicians and people to create, thrive and express themselves with an authenticity and a swagger in a way that is unique and original to London. The aim of this podcast is to try and delve into this energy through its iconic music venues. My focus will be to showcase and celebrate these spaces and places and unearth the narrative, the personalities and the anecdotes that have contributed to a venue's legend. And with that in mind, there are arguably no other venues in London that have the prestige, the status, the history as the building we are currently sitting in now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Ronnie Scott's. And to help tell that story, I have the privilege of being joined by three people who have collectively played a massive role in the running of the club over the last 30 years and beyond. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Miles Ashton. Hi. Miles is the technical manager of Ronnie Scott's and he's been tweaking and perfecting the sound here for over 30 years. Next up is James Pearson, a pianist, composer and creative tour de force. James is also the artistic director of Ronnie's and has been at the forefront of the club's programming and plays a crucial role in creating the atmosphere and vibe that is such a factor in the allure of Ronnie's. Yes. (laughs) Hello, everybody. Welcome along, James. And last up, we have a walking, talking encyclopedia of jazz, of Soho and Ronnie Scott's, the music bookings manager of the venue, Mr. Paul Pace. How do you do? Good to see you. Welcome, all of you. So I think the best place to start is 1959. Uh, Harold Macmillan, we never had it so good. Seven years before England won the World Cup, 14 years after World War II, London was obviously a very, very different place. Paul, if you'd like to start. United Kingdom, or London, was a very great place. There were still bomb sites from the uh, Second World War and Rastin had finished, but it was still that uh, gloomy air. And something like jazz, followed by young musicians, provided some kind of escape for that. But also just running back a few years to uh, the late 40s when Pete King and uh, Ronnie Scott were young musicians playing in various big bands at the time. Uh, They were enthused by the sounds of New York and they followed this music that was known as modern jazz at that time. It was different to traditional jazz or even the uh, swing band. So it was something new that's coming through as a frenetic uh, bebop of that period. And they wanted to create a home for that, which they didn't have. They, they themselves had played in various bands, but were generally playing in back rooms of pubs and places like that. There was no actual centre for the band. But they got their inspiration from playing in dance bands on the uh, transatlantic liners that went to New York. When they disembarked there, they would visit 52nd Street and all the clubs there, the Three Deuces, Birdland, etc. And they'd see their... Uh, their idols, and then they came back, they brought the records back and the music and so on, and uh, they sort of looked around for premises. But that, that's how it started, really. The so that was the inspiration at yes. the very start. So just give us a bit of context. Obviously, Ronnie Scott, his name is attached to the club. He's a famous saxophonist and was a player. But tell us a little bit more about Pete King. Well, Pete King was actually managing the band that Ronnie Scott was in with Toby Hayes, a, a tenor saxophonist prodigy, but they had a band together. And Pete King was their manager and therefore was ideal to actually partner with Ronnie. 
And that band was the Jazz Careers? Indeed, the Jazz Careers. They were very popular at the time, yeah. So it's 1959, New York is popping off in terms of like modern jazz. And then the vision was to bring that energy and those musicians back to London. Yes, that's right. Uh, they opened on the 30th of October, uh, 1959, in a, uh, a premises that was actually a, a hangout for uh, cab drivers where they had the cups of tea and all rest okay. of it. And the owner then uh, they came to some agreement to have jazz there in the evenings. And it was lo- usually local players, but they opened 30th of October, uh, big opening, and all the sort of top players were there. And uh, they worked for a while, putting on local acts, but it got to a point where it, w- it really wasn't working as a business. And uh, they thought, well, we'll have to bring over some of our heroes. But there was a musician's band, which meant that instrumentalists couldn't actually play in this country, couldn't come over here to play from, from the US. So how did they traverse that? Over to James on that one. Well, they basically, Pete King, one of his great moves was that he created, with Ronnie Scott, a reciprocal deal with the American Federation of Musicians, which is their equivalent of the British Musicians Union. And the deal was a reciprocal arrangement that they would send over a musician. We would send a British jazz musician to play in the clubs there if they could get someone good enough to play there. And fortunately, we had Tubby Hayes. And Tubby Hayes was booked at the, I think it was a half note, was half it? Half note, correct. The half yeah. note, and he played with Clark Terry. And as a result of that, they sent over Zoot Sims. And so okay. Zoot Sims was the first official American. And as Paul said, initially for a couple of years, it was guest musicians playing with the UK rhythm section. And then they would send over Ronnie Scott. He himself went over and played. Then they sent over Sonny Rollins and Wes Montgomery and all those old legends of jazz were able to play with usually the Stan Tracy trio or maybe Eddie Thompson or something like that. So it's basically like a jazz equivalent of a school exchange. Yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. As Paul says, the early days of the club was very much run on a hand-to-mouth basis. They would have a meeting at the end of the week to see, have we got enough money to do another week sort of thing? And I think they were totally surprised at how long the whole thing went on and before it moved to the new premises. But, you know, it's like... How long was it in Gerald Street for? Well, it stayed there. It moved to the current premises in Frith Street in 1965, and they kept the lease on the old place. That's why it's called the old place, because whilst it was called Ronnie Scott's then, but then when musicians used to say, oh, where are you playing tonight? Sometimes they would be playing in the old place. Right, okay. So therefore, that's where that terminology came in. That, that was used as a rehearsal space for some of the up-and-coming British bands like John Sermon and Mike Westbrook and also some of the rock bands that started. They used to, sort of, Ronnie used to let them use it. It was quite experimental at the time. I mean, it was quite uh, generous of Pete and Ronnie to have that still going. They were paying rent on the premises, weren't making any money, actually losing money on it. And they had the likes of Mike Westbrook, Michael Garrick, and uh, Chris McGregor and the Blue Notes were playing there. The, the, the South African band who came over. So it was interesting that uh, that music flourished. It became a scene of its own before it had to close down for financial reasons. At the old place. At the old place, correct. So we move over to Thrift Street in 1965. And how had like the British appetite for jazz evolved in those six years? Was there more of a appreciation of it? Had it kind of moved into the mainstream slightly? And did Ronnie's kind of help facilitate that well, as a venue? There was a golden era when a lot of those musicians, the American musicians, were household names. The likes of uh, Stan Getz and Sonny Rollins were certainly well-known by the public. I think the first American musician, or the last one who played, was Youssef Latif, and then had the Buddy Rich Big Band came along. That was the first big band who played that. So that was, uh, that excited people, you know, rather than see local talent or circuit musicians were doing lots of other places at the same time. So that made Ronnie's a bit of a musical oasis. There was no, nowhere else was this happening in this uh, intimate space, hearing these incredible musicians. 
my first visit here was actually to see Zoot Sims and to come and sit there in that room and see somebody close up that I'd only seen on photographs. Right, okay. And see them play. I'd be a couple of feet away from them. And I had that wonderful experience with the likes of Dizzy Gillespie and uh, Roland Kirk and people like that. Just absolutely magical. That was in the new place. New place, that's right. My first visits here were in the 70s, but that was happening in the late 60s onwards in, at Ronnie's. And it was also becoming a bit of a, an in-place to be as well. Still had the, the turn end of the swinging 60s in London, sort of people who kind of Peter Cook and people that would come into the, into the club. So, yeah. So it was developing a bit of a vibe. Mm. Definitely. Also, it was one of the few places that had a late night license. Right. In the 60s, it was quite a rare thing to have a three o'clock license. Okay. And uh, they spent ages trying to get that three o'clock license. Um, and so obviously the celebs would come here and there's photos of people like Peter Sellers, the Beatles used to come here a lot. And obviously um, some of the Stones and right, okay. Georgie fame, all the basic, the stars of yeah, the day, yeah, still yeah. are black. Did any of those, like any of the Beatles or the Stones perhaps the old place? I don't or, think or was so. it, was think it so, solely no. jazz music? And you said it was rock and roll. Um, apparently Sorry. John Lennon spent his 23rd birthday, which would have been in 1963 um, or 64, at the club. Oh, amazing. Um, that's in Ronnie's book. Okay. That John Lennon was in there. And also Ronnie ended up playing on the track Lady Madonna. Oh, wow. Um, apparently they came down here, because that was in 67, I think, Lady Madonna, or 66, or 68, the late 60s. And uh, they came to the club and Ronnie was still playing, you know, and they said, oh, we like that guy, let's get him on our track, you know. And then he turns up and then they go up to, uh, you know, they went up to CTS and they got Ronnie to play. So well, next time you listen to Lady Madonna, that is Ronnie Scott oh, wow. in the middle. I know when it was. When was it? It was the 6th of February, 1968. Oh, I got the right year eventually. <laughs> and that's not because I'm a Beatles nerd, that's because it's my birthday. Oh, right, The day okay. I was born was the day that Ronnie Scott recorded the solo on Lady Madonna. Yeah. That's an auspicious record to be it's on in Wikipedia, it must be true. <laughs> that's amazing, man. I knew there was something special. But a lot of the mainstream uh, rock pop music were very enamoured with Ronnie and Pete and what they created here. You know, okay. they're, they're like Rick Wakeman, they've got some very... Why do you think that was? It was all about music. Yeah, I think, I think that, music. that was a great thing. That was the, the, the genesis of Ronnie's is about music. It's not about making they, money. They wanted to make a club run by musicians for musicians. Yeah. That was their, their remit. Place where Ronnie could play. You know, Pete was a saxophone player, but he gave up playing right. when they started the club. But it was always a showcase for Ronnie Scott himself to play because he was a star saxophone player at the time, you know. So that ethos underpinned yes, the whole running of the club. Yeah, very much so, yeah. And it's amazing that that's been maintained for so long, for over 60 years. There's also humour, you know, getting through tough times. And Ronnie's got a fantastic sense of humour. Right. And he was on stage telling these one-liners that uh, everybody heard before, if they'd been to the club before, but it was so funny. His sense of timing was it was, it was a musician's yeah. timing, of course, was absolutely spot on. So what you were know. his go-to one-liners then? Uh, that's a nice suit you're wearing, sir. Somewhere in South London, there's a Ford Prefect with its seat covers missing. That was what I remember. <laughs> he had a whole routine that he did. Oh, really? He would bang the mic going, is this thing on? You know, like that. And Was um, it like the same thing every night? Or? More or less, yeah. Was he it was, like he alternating? Was, he was a have... dark character, Ronnie. He, 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 he was he a dark was, character? Yeah, he was friends with Spike Milligan. Okay. And Spike Milligan would tell him jokes, and he liked surreal jokes. Okay. So, you know, he would... He, he, he would change his material. I remember during the BSC crisis, he did his joke, you know, two cows in a field and one of them says what do you think about all this mad cow's disease and 
because it doesn't bother me, I'm a chicken. Uh, <laughs> and Spike Milligan told him that joke, and he yeah. would say, Spike Milligan told me a great joke. You know, So he, he would freshen it up with a few jokes, but he, most people who came who were regulars had heard the routine. But they actually came back for that, didn't they, yeah. in a sense? It was like, oh, we must hear, you've got to come here on his jokes. And, right, okay. and they loved the fact that he was going to say certain yeah, yeah, classic yeah, 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 lines. Sure. You know? It was a good way of keeping people there. You know, in, the, in New York, there'd be someone like Bill Cosby, uh, you know, God bless his soul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who would uh, introduce or, or tell some jokes before John Coltrane came on. So right, that, okay. there was, there was a, a model of that in the New York clubs about a comedian going up there. And they couldn't really afford to book a comedian right. the way things were. Uh, so they, so Ronnie did it himself. You know, he went up Amazing. there and he was absolutely magical. And around the same time, of course, with the Establishment Club, which was on Greek Street, which was Peter Cook and Dudley Moore had this thing, which was much more focused on comedy. But, of course, Dudley Moore played fantastic jazz in right, the background. Okay. You know, so there was that running at the same time. Yeah, I think he wanted to do a lot more stand-up as it was the fashion. He actually booked a comedian to do an entire week. And Miles Davis was quite confused because he came to, he visited the club a couple right. of times before he actually played. And as a punter? As or? He came in with his entourage one night and everybody said, you've got to go to Ronnie Scott's. It's the hottest jazz club in town. And the first time he came, <laughs> there wasn't any jazz. There was this stand-up comedian. That who had the right a place. conversation with Miles Davis, who looked very confused, but obviously thought this is what the British did for jazz. So when did Miles Davis first play here? 69, wasn't it? They did a TV special. That's right. I did a uh, BBC recording, and uh, Ronnie introduced it, and it was uh, a classic band. It was at the time of uh, uh, Bitches Brew. Right. So is this after Kind of Blue? Yes, correct. Right. Kind of Blue was... Was yeah. early 60s. Kind yeah. of Blue was 1959, yeah. When the club opened, that was when Kind of Blue was about. So when was he at like the peak of his powers? This is like the electric Miles period. Oh, right. Miles Davis okay. was at his peak of his powers from the probably the, from his whole career because yeah. he changed his musical styles so yeah, many yeah, times. Yeah. And as Paul said, when he came to here, it was the start of this electric band, wasn't it? That's right. I mean, he had Wayne Shorter in the band, Chick Corea, uh, Dave Holland, and uh, who else? Andre Jackson on drums. It was a you know they were an all star band, but of course they were very young musicians then doing this recording, and it was quite out there. Really, it was quite. It was, Almost free jazz, really. Right, okay. At the time. It's so. more like verging on the psychedelic almost. Or... Yeah, touches of that as well, but quite, yeah, quite, quite free, although not as free as Ornette Coleman. Bonnie described it afterwards as a fire in a pet shop. <laughs> okay. I don't know if that's a compliment or not. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> I think, yeah, Ronnie didn't expect it to be quite so free and improvised as it was. And that's what he meant. Obviously, he respected Miles Davis as a musician, but as you know, Miles Davis was always further in his head. I mean, he he even had towards the end of his life, he was working with bands like Scritti Politti and Prince, and you know, right, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. He was always collaborating with yeah, the, yeah, yeah. with this, you know, whoever he could find. Yeah, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard a story that apparently uh, Miles Davis and Jimi Hendrix were due to collaborate prior to Jimi Hendrix's death. That was on the cards, you know. That was oh, something really? they they were talking about and. Gil Evans was also involved with that discussion as well. Oh, wow. And he brought out an album called Gil Evans Plays Jimi Hendrix, which was some of the arrangements they were going to be doing together with Miles. And then Miles also spoke with Prince as well. They, yeah, they, yeah. There is some bootleg somewhere, I believe, of a recording of them playing together. Yeah. We'll come on to Prince later. But on the subject of Jimmy, he played his last ever performance, right, at Ronnie Scott's. Is that correct? Yeah. On the night of his Yeah, he death. wasn't uh, his gig. It was, was, it, was it Eric Burns? It was, more, it was The Animals, uh, right? Uh, yes, he he was the singer with the Animals. Yeah. That's right. But he was with a band called War. War were doing a, a residency at Ronnie Scott's, and then Jimmy Hendrix went to the stage and jammed with them. Wow. And that was just before he passed away. He went back to his flat, and I think that was his last time wow. in Soho. Oh my god! Yeah. So was he a regular attendee at Ronnie's? 
Not particularly, no. He probably dropped in now and again. There were a lot of other clubs, weren't there? Because there was the Whiskey A Go Go and the Flamingo, and there was another blues club, and that one that's still there, but it doesn't get used. The Bag of Nails. Bag of Nails. There's quite a few around that are venues that are listed as ones that Hendrix played at. Ronnie's was just happens to be where he made his last public appearance. So it wasn't like his go to. Don't believe so, no. But Soho at the time was obviously like a, was it a mecca for music? Was there a lot of like live venues going on? Did they all kind of like compete? Was there a healthy relationship with them in and amongst them? Paint a bit of a picture about like the 60s in Soho. You know, you, you could start off with the, the coffee bars in Soho. That, that was right. a big scene there. That was the Two Eyes and so on where people like uh, Joe Brown, Cliff Richard started off, etc. Right. But later on, from the, uh, the early 60s onwards, you had the marquee. And that's when he had Zoot Money and Georgie Fame playing there. They, they did all-nighters. Like, yeah, really I used nice. to hear stories from some of the musicians where they, they would go up, for, I would say, to Birmingham or something, up the M1 to play a gig, but they would then come back to Soho, to right, the Flamingo, yeah. and play the all-nighter. And it was still going on, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. They, they, they would do the all-nighter after they'd already done a gig elsewhere, you know. But the bigger influence on that were the GIs who went to uh, frequent there. They went to that, and they brought their records along as well. So those are lots of James Brown and uh, right, okay. all the soul stuff that's coming through. So that influenced people like Georgie Fame, of course, uh, when they were playing there, they started playing that music. Isn't it amazing to think of like a world pre-internet, particularly in terms of like how music is exchanged? So it's to do with like people, isn't it? Like movement yeah. of people. You had to work hard to find out about this music. You, you made that effort and of course it made it meant so much more. Also, the way people listened to music, um, you know, in a sense, vinyl, you'd have to go through the process of putting it on. Yeah. And therefore, you'd probably listen to it. Whereas nowadays, with everything digitised, you don't even listen to albums because you no, just no, choose the track. Not, yeah. And jazz music itself, as Paul touched on, it really does need to be heard live. And in the context of Ronnie's, it's when you're so close to the artists, and that still happens today, you know, in the artists of the day. And that's the one thing that a lot of people, when they come to Ronnie's, they can't believe how physically close they are yeah, to yeah, the stage. Yeah, sure. Whereas some of these artists would normally play in the Albert Hall or stadiums, though you get to see them five, ten feet away yeah, from you. Yeah. you know? But that's, that's the magic of absolutely. Ronnie Scott's in a lot of respects. I mean, it's the interaction. You also see it visually as well. You see the way musicians look at each other, give each other cues yeah, and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember coming here to see uh, a pianist called Cedar Walton, and he had one of the great drummers in the music, uh, Billy Higgins, and he lit up the core of the room just by smiling. But he was there constantly with the band as a team player. But also I think artists play differently in Ronnie Scott's because it's such an intimate venue as opposed to a stadium or, you know, a venue like the Royal Albert Hall. Oh, definitely, because you're the audience right in front of you. As a performer, if you're playing in those things, you can, it's actually easier on one level because you don't really, you're unaware of the audience. You are aware, but you don't really notice them because there's so many. There's like this mass. And also there's a, usually quite a distance between where you are and the audience, especially in outdoor gigs. Um, whereas in Ronnie's, as a performer, they are right on top of you. And if there's someone having a conversation on the table next to you, it's, that can be irritating. I mean, that doesn't really happen here, but, you know, every now and again, it has happened in the past. Well, when I came to see Chet Baker, who's a very introspective player, very, very delicate and so on, there was a guy at the table. I had my table right at the front of the stage, and this guy was yapping away. What year was this? This was, uh, I think, in the 80s. I think it was he was doing quite a few gigs here. Often, Peter and Ronnie were a bit worried that he'd turn up or not. So uh, they had another band ready to go into his place. But anyway, he was playing beautifully, of course, and uh, this chap was just going on about his record collection to his two friends. 
You know, I just thought and he was sat a real in the deal. front row in right, front yeah, of Chet Baker. <laughs> Chet Baker. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you would spit blood to be in that position yeah, there, yeah, would yeah, you? For sure. So that kind of thing went on. You know, we had um, what we call the suits came in. The business uh, people came in with their girlfriends and uh, personal assistants, etc. And they would occupy a table in the what we now call the pit, uh, the lower part of the uh, auditorium, and just talk their way through this, the uh, the concert. And there were three occasions, I remember, when the band leader stopped the gig. And one of those was Milk Jackson, one was Roland Kirk and Freddie Hubbard. You know, they just thought, well, you know. You, know, the you keep was, the noise down, yeah. Yeah, keep the noise down in so many words. You can swear. It's right. it. <laughs> <laughs> we do ask people to keep quiet while the musicians perform. But, you know, Ronnie's is a funny place because there's a sizable percentage of the audience every time who actually don't know what's on stage. They've right. come because it's Ronnie Scott. Yeah, 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 for sure. They haven't come booking tickets to see the artist. They probably don't know who the artist is. And there aren't many music venues like that where you just go because you want to go to that venue and you don't really know what's on or yeah. care. It's an f- odd thing about Ronnie's. I mean, I've had times when I've been playing and uh, hunters have come up to me and says, what time does the jazz start? Oh, God. <laughs> and I said, that was jazz. <laughs> oh, was that jazz? I really liked it. You know, <laughs> and that's exactly that. Some people don't know what jazz is, but then they you bring them to Ronnie Scott's and they're playing... And they go, oh, is that what it is? Oh, I really like that sort of music, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that still very much happens, though. In my experience is coming here for sure. There's people, and I've I've seen some amazing, legendary artists. The people just yabbering the whole way through. A bit, and they don't necessarily know who it is. They've come to Ronnie Scott's club, and they, you know, they probably don't care if you tell them. Yeah, yeah. it's that's why you have to ask them out of politeness to keep quiet while the musicians perform. You know, Ian Shaw, the British jazz singer, he once was on stage when I was playing, and. Uh, there was some person talking and he just just cut us all off. And he goes, it's so irritating, isn't it, when you come out for dinner and someone builds a jazz club around you. <laughs> and there was a sort of this pause of silence because this guy was unaware and he was just talking away to his girlfriend yeah, or whatever, yeah. chatting away. And then, of course, he, he just waited um, in complete stillness. The band stopped and then the audience just started clapping like that. And this bloke was unaware of this whole thing, which added to the sort of comedy value. Wow. So we're, we're kind of like up to around the 1970s. So like the 60s, who were the most iconic musicians who played here, would you say? Obviously, Miles Davis. Stan Getz. Stan um, Getz. When did Ella Fitzgerald play here? In the 70s. That was uh, 74. That was, that was also recorded by the BBC. And I think that's also when the, the toilet was installed in the uh, dressing oh, yes. room. Is that right? <laughs> but are you also missing Bill Evans as well? Because Bill Evans played in the old place. Yes. Right. He okay. was the first, uh, that was the first all-American Band to come over. So pre sixty five, after the deal it was, was negotiated. in sixty five, sixty four, sixty four, sixty four. Was in sixty four, and they had to get a Steinway piano, and there was all the furor about that. But what you haven't had is the story of uh, which I think you get Miles to tell of some of the unlikely jazz visitors that Ronnie had um, in the form of the gangsters of Soho. This is this is something that will be interesting yeah. to touch on, yeah. So they're, they're all there. I mean, I don't whether it's an apocryphal story or not, but the gang sort of rivalries between the Richardsons and the Crays right. and stuff, because every venue supposedly... What, had to pay protection money? Yeah, you know, you, you don't know. But I, I mean, Pete was quite vocal about the fact that they the, the Crays had kind of escorted them somewhere to look for a new venue when they were looking for a bigger place than the old right, place okay. and took them to a venue in Kensington. We, you, know, you know, we hear you boys are looking for a bigger venue and they wanted them in their pocket in their venue. Right, okay. And they were able to wriggle out of that by, I think it was upstairs, and they said, you know, people got to bring double basses and hammer organs in here and we, we need somewhere that's on street level, not up a whole bunch of stairs. And they, you know, were able to 
dodge that by going, oh, so it's the stairs, is it? Okay, we understand, kind of thing. <laughs> Who are the other organised crime family? The Richardsons. That's another one, yeah. There's a story that James tells on stage in part of the story of Ronnie Scott's about this bottle of champagne that okay. was supposedly given to Pete and Ronnie. Well, it definitely was given by Albert Dimes because in the 1979 documentary that they did about the club, an omnibus, you've got Ronnie talking about this bottle of champagne okay. that was given to Pete and Ronnie when they moved here in 1965 by a so another Soho character called Albert Dimes or Alberto Dimeus, who was known as the godfather of Thrift Street. And uh, he sort of was above, at that time, he was saw, definitely saw himself as the king of Thrift Street right. and anybody, that any trouble, you had to go through Albert Dimes. Um, he was responsible for a very famous fight with a guy called Jock Scott, Jock somebody or other. It was known as the Battle of Thrift. And right, okay. the only reason... Not that on they, site of Ronnie's. No, they both ended Thrift up Street. in Charing Cross Hospital <laughs> in, next to each other in beds. And the only reason that Albert Dimes had won the fight is because... In the corner, there used to be an Italian deli, and the proprietor of that had got the scales and thrown them over this other guy. Um, it was a knife fight, actually. And anyway, it all got sorted out. But that was the sort of thing that went on, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not probably every day. But anyway, so if things happen, like the craze wanted to overtake the club or and things like that, Albert Dimes would find out about it. He probably knew about it anyway, and he would pop his head and say, oh, I hear you had a bit of trouble <laughs> the other day. Um and apparently he walked in with this magnum of mum champagne, which is now nowadays in this year is a common occurrence. You know, most of us have one every day. But in 1965, <laughs> in 1965, a magnum of champagne was a very expensive thing. And he said, put this on the side of your bar. You won't have any trouble from anyone. And uh, so Ronnie and Pete saw it as a sort of talisman. And it's true. They never had the gang. The gang still carried in, but they saw this bottle of champagne. and uh, So it was like a marker it was of like protection a, yeah, from the yeah, well. end. And, but uh, there was another story that Ronnie says that they said, and he's, Albert Dimes had said to them, well, open it when you uh, go into profit. And, uh, and <laughs> still and hasn't opened yet. still yeah. hasn't opened it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story I heard. Amazing. So it's, it's the 70s now, and obviously, like, music is changing, and the world is gradually becoming a smaller place. How was that era for the club in terms of like the musicians who came here? And also like when and how did the style of music start to diversify slightly from traditional or non-traditional jazz to other well, like funk, soul, disco? Well, Ronnie's was right in the thick of it. I mean, Ronnie and Pete did try to go left field with Ornette Coleman and Cecil Taylor. It didn't quite work out, but they did go down the fusion route with uh, Weather Report. Weather Report played here. And, uh, and you had people like Charles Mingus as well. I mean, oh, wow. they're all kind of fairly progressive uh, bands coming into the club. Uh, Herbie Hancock came with his Monodishi band here in 1972. So it's 50 years since he's been wow. here in the club. He is due a visit, Herbie Hancock. He is due yeah, a visit, yeah, you're yeah. right. So <laughs> if we say that enough times, he'll come in. But uh, if you're listening, Herbie. The, 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 <laughs> the breadth of uh, music that was uh, presented by Peter Ronnie was pretty amazing. You know, it's, it, it was there. It was all very hip stuff, as well as the kind of... Uh, Oscar Petersons and the uh, Fitzgeralds and Dizzy Gillespie and so on. That they, they were still bringing in good crowds. Uh, but, you know, you would go and see Dizzy Gillespie, for example, from Monday to Wednesday, and the club would be half full. You know, it would, And then it would start picking up Thursday, Friday. They would play three to four week residencies in the club, which was uh, unheard of now. You know, the, the music was was quite amazing. I remember just coming here and just being absolutely flabbergasted with the quality. That... Even Ronnie brought a whole bunch of bands over from Cuba. Oh, wow. They were very big in promoting Latin jazz 
Archer Sound about. No, that was more the eighties when it was sort of Kiri, the, yeah. you know, they, they 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 didn't stick with just straight ahead yeah, yeah, jazz. Yeah, sure. and yeah. The kind of artists that did play for three or four weeks like Ayato Maria and Fru Pirum yeah, and Royers, right. you know, those yeah. those are the are yeah, they 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 do a month residency. Wow. They'd you know, bring Eric Kerry over from Cuba and they'd be here four weeks. Wow. And that was quite a breakthrough. That was something that Ronnie's had instigated, you know, this this kind of Cuban invasion. Uh, there were other bands well, Los Van Van and uh, Afro Cuba played here in the club, but it was something Pete and Ronnie had gone to the Havana Jazz Festival. Ronnie had played there. And um they they made some sort of connection and were able to bring over Cuban musicians, but they weren't able to travel with money or or take money back, let's say. And they, they did some various sessions like at Abbey Road and so right. on, and be paid with uh, goods like uh, Ghetto Blasters and so uh, on. Okay. But they were incredible musicians. They brought a lot of energy. Arturo Sandoval yeah, had yeah. so much energy. He ran around the stage, played congas, wow. piano, trumpet, and so on. But it brought something else to the club that was beyond jazz as well. So people who weren't really jazz people yeah. came along to see these bands. Okay, cool. And it produced what you know a world music scene in a way before its time. Yeah, yeah, you know, for sure. 10 years or 15 years before it started be- becoming called world music. And a question to all three of you, what gig artist would you have loved to have seen at Ronnie Scott's? It's a very good question. I mean, Paul mentioned a weather report just then. That would be very high up on my list. I don't know what the lineup of weather report would have been on that. It's one of the earlier incarnations of it, but uh, I think pre-Jacko, I think it's uh, Mir- Miroslav yeah, Vatus. Yeah, I, mean, you know, I don't know if Jacko ever played Ronnie's. I don't, no, no, he didn't. No, they, he, did. he, he came into Ronnie's once. He, he bumped into Pete Erskine, who was the drummer of Weather Report at the time. They had a bit of an encounter. That would uh, be quite high on my list. Yes. I mean, I think the original Chick Career Electric band with Scott oh, Anderson. Oh, I saw them here. That Scott Anderson, I'd yeah. love to have seen that. Actually amazing. You know, they made quite an impact. Yeah. Yeah, but we'd all like to have seen Ella or something. I mean, luckily yeah. some of these things are televised and you can watch them. But you know. Yeah, Oscar Peterson, there's a lot of footage of him yes. playing here. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen Bill Evans because so many people, when they often talk to you about their favourite bands when you're on stage, oh, I remember seeing so-and-so here, and I reckon seven or eight out of ten, it's about hearing Bill Evans. Oh, wow. And people talk about watching him. They said, you know, they, we watched Bill Evans because it was like electric atmosphere. Even though he was an instrumentalist, you could hear the silence he would command. I mean, you saw him, Paul. Yes, I did. So his last visit here was 1980. And uh, you come through the lobby and you'd actually see Bill Evans at, at the coffee table. You didn't know what to say to him because he's he was so great. Yeah. And then it was his last band and it, it was like Sermon on the Mount. You know, and there was okay. light coming down. <laughs> his head was near, next to the keyboard as he did. He kind of listened to his, his playing very closely. You're giving away your uh, Catholic school education there. Oh, you're a little bit, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know all about that. Um, so that was great. I mean, the, the, the names that are mentioned now, I would love to go and see them again. You know, I mean, it was, it was quite extraordinary being that and thinking about it. I would love to see Frank Sinatra here. He's the epitome of popular jazz vocals, I think, you know, to see him in an intimate space. Another interesting thing is that Ronnie in 72 booked the classical guitarist John Williams and they did a week of uh, classical guitar. This is also documented on the BBC and there's some great footage of Ronnie telling jokes and this was in the early 70s and of the club then and it's basically John Williams with all his sort of 1970s clothes on and everything Um, and it's wonderful that that happened purely looking back at it and listening to all these people going to a jazz club and they're hearing, you know, 16th century guitar music. Sunrise never played it, did they? Yes, uh, I think in the, uh, was it the early 90s? I mean, Giles Peterson waxed lyrical about uh, seeing Sunrise here, but uh, I didn't see Sunrise here, but uh, I saw him in Brixton, but uh, yeah, he played here. Yeah, it was, and we've had the orchestra without Sunrise now with uh, Marshall Allen, who now leads them at the age of uh, 90. Six, whatever he is. And they all come yeah. with their gowns, don't they? Yeah, yeah they do. That's yeah. how the, the face makeup and so on. 
And, and what's the best gig that never happened but almost did? Excellent question. I don't have a prepared answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> Should have read the email. <laughs> I, feel, I feel, I mean, I can't say yeah, because yeah. I think it might jeopardise that person coming into the club. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll leave it in the universe. Negotiations well, no, a lot of the time people did talk about, you know, getting together and doing a gig at Ronnie's. Yeah. Like Jeff Beck wanted to do one with Pat Metheny. Oh, wow. Which will never happen now because of Jeff Beck. Duke Ellington never played here. That would have been a great gig had that happened, yeah, but I don't sure. think he was actually ever asked to play here. What we had, did have was modern jazz called Chet. They were playing concert halls, but they came and played Ronnie's one. So there was an affection from musicians yeah. who played larger auditoria, but wanted to play the club. So that, that was very nice indeed. Harry Connick was going to come and play, but then there was a slight altercation with his record company and a, and a waiter. So okay. that's ongoing, <laughs> okay. even though it's still about 15 years ago. But he did come in with his entire band. And so, as Paul said, they, when the big bands come into town, they used to get up on stage with us a lot and play with the support band or the right, late okay, show band and things like that. And uh, Harry was there and he gave us sort of the nod and I went and said hello to him. And then for some strange reason, he walked out. We never saw him again. <laughs> And they say, never meet your heroes. Which artists surpassed or underpassed your expectations? <laughs> well, on, on a positive side, you do get, I mean, it's, it's quite funny because a lot of the bookings, there is that flying ointment, something happens, the, the band are held up at the airport, whatever. Like Sometimes it's due to the artist not being as nice a person as you could imagine. Right, okay. I mean, I could cite somebody like Michael Brecker, I think he surpassed my expectations okay. for not only being an absolutely, totally lovely guy, but playing better than I even could dream of. He played from the first note of the sound check to the last note of the last show, just off the scale, brilliant. Having heard him on record a lot, I didn't know he was even as good as that when he played live. He was incredible, wow. you know. And you'll cut somebody a lot of slack for being an arsehole if they're brilliant. But my experience is, is the really brilliant people are generally really nice people as yeah, well. Yeah. You know, the ones who are going to come into the other category are usually covering up for some sort of deficiency along the way. Right, somewhere, okay. You know, that's interesting. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with Miles actually. Uh, someone like Lee Rittner, for example, you know, comes in, fantastic player, great music, and he, he remembers you and have it's a genuine interchange. And even when Chick Corea came in, he was talking to everybody in the club. He was, you know, just, just a lovely person. Uh, and that makes a difference. Yeah, and then you, you want to give them as much as you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. James, anyone to uh, underpass or surpass? <laughs> no, I think I, I totally agree. In general, there are obviously exceptions, um, but because all of them are still active on the music scene, I'm not going to mention Yeah, yeah it's difficult to talk. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, generally, people are lovely in yeah, this place yeah. and they're pleased to be here. It is like a... Yeah, yeah family and they, you know a lot of the time they obviously Paul who's worked here but see Miles who's worked here a long time longer than you know most of us and it's nice for them to have that sense of you know belonging and, yeah, and connection yeah happy about yeah, yeah. it even and as it's interesting as Paul says sometimes you get the big stars that haven't played here for a long time and even Pat Matheny when he came and played here a few years ago he talked about you know coming here in 1970 or something like that and he was able to remember or, you know, 1975 or something. And it brings out the best of people just mm. being here. And even uh, the the fact that there is a jazz club that has survived this long is a great thing um, because most of them go in and out of favour. You know, even the original Birdland isn't the original Birdland yeah, right. in New York. It's still there. It's in a different place. And um, this has basically been going for 64 years. What would you say the most challenging gig that you've ever witnessed or heard of here that's taken place? I know the Prince gig gets talked about a lot. There's a few. I mean, I remember with Tony Bennett. That was quite complicated. And I think that, you know... In what respects? 
Um, he didn't want the PA system that we had, so, oh, no. so he was he walked in the door and he wanted to have a PA system on the back walls of the club because he likes to stand slightly in front of it. So they, okay. they had to actually get the PA company to bring us a, a different PA system in for him, for him to be happy to stand there on stage. Then with the PA barely on because he whispers, oh, and wow. obviously the room is absolutely deathly silent out of respect to something such yeah, as yeah, yeah. him. And you can borderline hear him completely acoustically because he's just so quiet. And tell us about the Prince gig, because that's obviously, in my experience with Ronnie's, that's rooted in its recent legends. The Prince gig occurred because Prince wanted to play all the venues that Jimi Hendrix had played at. That's why he wanted to play at Ronnie's. And they'd been talking about him playing here for a few years and it never occurred, you know, it never happened. But then his entourage did come in and they saw Nick Lewis, who was a colleague of ours. Did you see them at that time? Yeah, I did. Yeah. The entourage, so, yeah. So there yeah, was a meeting. Yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was very, very cloak and dagger to begin yeah. with. Yeah. I mean, the initial call I had from a guy was, um, you know, very... He wouldn't even say the name, Prince. He said, I, we're an artist who I'm going to refer to as King, but we both know who we're talking about. Okay. And so he wouldn't... You know, I know we thought this conversation was being recorded, but he wouldn't actually say the name of the artist. And it was going to be the first show when he came over. Um, and we were scheduled for a particular day, and they pulled out on us at the last minute and went to the electric ballroom. They went to yeah, I they think. went to Camden, uh, yeah, venue in Camden. Yeah. And they decided to they did a pre-show and they decided to stay there and do a show. So we ended up. It was about a month later or so. Mm. He'd been been doing the rounds of lots of different venues before he finally rocked up here. And we didn't believe it was going to happen. Yeah. So it was all actually, oh, is he coming? Right, is he coming or not? <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah, we were starting to get a bit blasé about it. Right, for, okay. you know, they don't really mean it. Yeah. You know? The idea, I think, initial idea was to go through smaller venues around London. So well, was it was small. definitely the Hendrix. It was, he yeah, wanted to play the, the, the Jimi Hendrix mm. venues. He had a, was going through a kick about that for some but time. But then he didn't he actually play the guitar at all. <laughs> he ended he up barely played, yeah, he, he didn't give up. But what, once guitar. he agreed to play, how long did you have to prepare for that show? That was fairly quick, wasn't it? I mean, it was... Uh, I think we knew it was happening. We knew it was happening. And I think, yeah. I think we even had one of our regular bands kind of on standby if they didn't show. Right. But, I mean, they had all day. They tore the place apart to make the show happen. There were another lot that took... They did three shows. They took the PA system out of the room as well. Right, okay. Which is unheard of. You know, that's one of the only other... I mean, even that Tony Bennett one, they didn't yeah, take yeah. Our, our sound system away. Prince's Brigade did. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, they, they stripped the room of everything. So they, they removed the PA system. Yeah, absolutely. And they yeah. brought in their own system. Yep. They unplugged all of the house stuff because they were very protective of anybody recording it covertly. And they multi-track recorded every show on that whole tour. Wow. So there's a vault somewhere with all of that in. And I know that for sure because I'm personal friends with the guy that did it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, they, they multi-track recorded everything. Wow. But then in terms of, like, preparing the club and, and didn't you have to, like, there's no story about dressing the room in purple and... We had to have a love seat. It said on his rider that he, <laughs> Prince requires a love seat and... Uh, we flagged this up with uh, one of his many entourage, and they said, yeah. oh, in the case of Ronnie Scott's, you won't need the love seat, whatever that meant. Yeah. You know, the love they had a big the... truck. They were on the road with a big truck full of equipment that they parked and brought in what they needed. They didn't need anything from us apart from the room. Didn't you send something similar about your rider for this podcast? Yeah, the love seat. <laughs> and, you, and you tore it up. Yes. <laughs> we're, we're in it now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we had a, another one many years ago when Christina Aguilera, um, she was launching a... Uh, album she did called Jazz, I think it was called, or something. It was a jazz album. And she came, and this was in 2006 or 2007, 
And we've been sent, and the record company paid for her rider, which was a case of Dom Perignon on your tech, which is very hard to get hold of in this country. But what was even harder to get hold of was that water from Fiji, which you can now buy everywhere. Oh, in those Fiji days, water, yeah. It was like 15 quid a bottle. and We were running around everywhere, and they had to import this bottle because now you can get it everywhere, but then you couldn't. And they had all these dressing room requirements, and we had a French girl who was working here, and she sort of dressed it up, and they had this sort of Moroccan vibe with right, the, okay. you know, sort of <laughs> incense burning and everything like that, and these beautiful bottles of Onya Tech in wonderful crystal glasses and this Mount Fiji water. She didn't even go to the dressing room. So it was just like this room. We all went into, my God, this is the most beautiful room in the club. And uh, Christina Aguilera just literally had just walked on stage and she didn't sing. She just talked about this album. Okay. Um, and then the rider just got left there. And so, so what did you do with the champagne? Well, Someone go home with some nice, some nice bottles. We had night. a good party. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks to Christina. <laughs> yeah. That's a nice little segue, like riders. What are the weird and wonderful requests that you've had for riders over the years? Well, you get two riders because you get what artists would like in their dressing room and then you get technical riders, which is very much what Miles yeah, yeah. has to do. In yeah. fact, when we book the bands, we have to really make sure that Miles is involved in that initial process because sometimes he's hiring various equipment. Yeah. Be very yeah, expensive. Some bands, are, you know, there are expense for getting the equipment that they have on their contract is as big as their fee. And is that, you know, is that Ronnie's cost? It's not yes, the but band's it's built into the deal. It's, but yeah, yes, right, of course, okay, yeah. yeah sure. If they send us a contract and I look at it and say, that's going to cost us £2,000 to rent that little offer, then that goes into the deal. Right. And at okay, some yeah, point, yeah. you could say to an artist, by the way, if you would just use our house equipment, you could have another £2,000 on yeah, your fee. Yeah, if you like, yeah, you know, sure. but you know, they, don't, they don't care about that sort of thing. We build that into what the offer is for the show. So when you started working here in 1980, well, mid-90s, 96, when I first came here right. um, in the mid-80s, okay. the first gig I ever saw in here was Arturo Sandoval, actually, funnily enough. I first came here with a band, mixing a band in about 1989 or 1990, okay. something like that. Um, and the day when the house engineer kind of went on holiday about two or three weeks later. You were like that over the mixing desk? No, no, no. He said to me, you know, and I was 20 years old or something, he said to me, right, I'm going on holiday I'm in two weeks' time and I need somebody to cover the club. Do you want to work in the club for a week? Oh, wow. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so I did the first week here and met Pete and Ronnie then. Oh, wow. And then when he left, you know, I got this call from Pete going, well, you're one of the only people around here who understands how this works, you know. And I looked after the PA system and the engineers ever since. I've never been the house engineer here. I've only right, ever okay. been the kind of, like, overseer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we've got lots of engineers. Do certain engineers specialise in certain sounds? Yeah, for sure, yeah. yeah. There's that, and also there's slightly more general remit that we only ever give one artist one engineer to deal with, right, and the okay. next artist, one engineer to deal with. So if somebody comes in for one night and I give them an engineer, that's fine. If they're here for six nights, they get the same guy for six nights. We don't make them right, deal okay, with yeah, yeah. different people. people each night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and that keeps the relationships. That's, it's quite an important relationship. And to, like, to the uninitiated, it's not something that a lot of people yeah, were that yeah, aware of. Or had quite a few engineers who go off on tour with a band or yeah. go and do shows with, can they met the engineer here? And I'm always very proud of any of the boys who, a show from a, an artist who works here and they like them, it's great, you know. But it's beneficial to us because we have someone like Tim Bray who tours with uh, Monty Alexander and he comes in here, does a fantastic job when Monty's playing in the club. You know, he's, yeah, he's, yeah, he's engineered yeah. all over Europe with, with Monty. Yeah. Uh, it's fantastic, yeah. I mean, you were talking about riders and the other element is what they want in their dressing room. Over the years, we get some quite strange requests, but one of, one of my favourite was Eliane Elias, um, who's an amazing Brazilian pianist. 
and uh, she wanted fresh papaya. Right, now we're obviously in England yeah. and you can't get fresh papaya, <laughs> but just by default, it's going to be at least a day old. Yeah, yeah. And she had a real hissy fit about oh, wow. this papaya and the poor girl that was trying to... Where did you go? Where did you find it? Well, she, Barbara was trying to... I think it was Barbara or... Yeah, probably. Yeah. And one of them was uh, yeah. running around all the shops everywhere to try and get... And it, whatever it was, it was either not ripe or it was... Quite like enough Whole Foods down yeah, yeah. near Piccadilly Circus. That's the answer to a lot of things like bespoke yeah. water and strange yeah, 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 yeah. fruit. But, you know, the rider demands, I mean, they are negotiable. Right, okay. And, you know... The, the sort of your classic rock and roll story of a bowl of M and M's with all the blue ones yeah. removed or something. This is just a test. It's not. It's not. It's not somebody being belligerent about something. It's, it's to check whether you read the rider. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah sure. Jules Holland's rider's got you know a set of postcards and postage stamps from the local area, and it's like tour manager comes in, checks the table if the postcards are there. He knows they read the rider. Okay. Fine. Same so it's thing more of a test. It's absolutely. More of like yeah. A... And you say right, we can't get this here. They're, they're, they're usually accommodating enough, and but you know when they're asking for vintage cognac or Dom yeah, Perignon yeah, yeah. or Cristal or something, you know, you've got to, you do sometimes just have to look at it and go, right, that's actually a big chunk of money yeah, yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you've got to be sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we had had to pay for that Christine Aguilera ride, it wouldn't have happened because right. that probably cost more than running the club for the day. <laughs> you know? so, Nigel Kennedy has a nice rock and roll rider when he right. comes. And he, I know he'll listen to this and we love Nigel's rider when he comes because yeah, he's Nigel's... very generous and he shares it with the staff. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, Nigel's <laughs> catering rider is is a significant cost, <laughs> put it that way, compared to the backline cost for the show or anything else. His catering rider is an absolutely significant cost that you do need to know about. Right, okay. There's another thing to sort of cross between a technical rider and a dressing rider, but sometimes you get instructions on how to tune the piano. Chick Career exactly. was was very um, insistent that, A, you had to be an approved tuner, but B, of the technical aspect of tuning the piano, and he was calling about pounding it, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, and you get pianists, riders, where they ask for the serial numbers of the piano oh, wow. stuff so they can look up the date of them. There's all manner of, you know, strange requests from... But, you know, we are dealing with the high-end artist. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Chick Corea had his own man come in with some crystals. Oh, yes, that's She right, placed yeah. around on the piano and around the room. So we've covered Chick Corea, we've covered crystals, we've covered riders. Let's start to try and bring the club into the 90s and the modern age. Um, what were the most standout performances and artists who performed here in the 90s? Oh, the 90s, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the decade I mean, that... I mean, there, there were residencies by people like Roy Ayers that were absolutely amazing for you know, that period. So that, that, I've seen Moyes here about eight or nine times. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's always great. Well, it has yeah, been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, we shop at, we I, shop I at Tesco's, tell, baby. Sorry? We shop at Tesco's, baby. We shop at, that's right, we shop at Tesco's, baby. Yeah, yeah. That's it. It was an interesting period, 90s, because by this time, some of the famous jazz legends have either died or jazz had lost its popularity um, as certainly in the 80s and early 90s. But as Paul said earlier, that Latin jazz explosion that we'd had in the 80s, that continued. Then you had jazz funk and all these bands were performing. Whereas right. Curtis Mayfield also played here. Oh, wow. Chet Baker performed here with Van Morrison and Elvis Costello. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, you know, and so there was there was those sort of things that goes on. Then you had all these residencies. Well, we, we did an album launch for Elvis Costello quite recently and he was eulogising about visiting Ronnie's many times and you know he's a guy that just came and sat and watched in the audience Amazing. lots of times and was telling us about it but you know from the 90s onwards I mean that was the era kind of after Ronnie Ronnie passed away in in December 1996 right okay and it was a very important thing for Pete King to want to keep the club going 
and really proved that he could run it by himself. He used to say many times that he felt it was absolutely important to keep the legacy going and he wanted to make sure that happened. I remember I was here the night Ronnie died. Wow. And um, that must have been pretty shocking. And It was, well, it was. It, wasn't. it was unexpected, wasn't it? it was... He wasn't playing. He'd had some dental work done not very well. And he was very depressed about the fact that he wasn't playing. He'd always play the Christmas season um, opening up for George Melly. And he was due to play that year. And he wasn't really feeling like he was up to it. He was blowing the horn in his office and he was not very happy about it. And right. he was very depressed about that, whether he would ever play again. Because he hadn't played for some time because he had terrible dental problems. So he was taking heavy-duty painkillers for his, his teeth and all of that. And... Um, that was part of the implication in, in when how he died. It was an open verdict, I think, in that it wasn't actually clear right, okay. whether he took his own life or whether it was an accident. But basically, the heavy-duty painkillers and alcohol were both involved. Okay. And so after Ron passed, Pete kept the place going, you know, right up until 2005 when he sold the place. And, um, and then Pete himself passed away in 2009, you know, so wow. we got the new owner's... 2005. So how was that era from 96 to 2005, post-Runny? Did, like, the energy of the club change drastically, or I think was it, it more oh, of a gradual yeah, thing? It changed a bit, but, I mean, you know, it, but Pete was still there, and he was very, the energy of the club was very much him. Yeah, yeah. Ronnie was often not there. Pete was the guy that was there all the time, because Ronnie was off playing, whereas Pete was the guy in the office who ran the club. So the energy of the club and the staff and the way that that run, that was absolutely probably more Pete than Ron. Right, okay. And then when did the Late Late Show come into existence? I think when um, it changed hands, you know, with uh, we had Leo Green who was manager for uh, how many years? A couple of years? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, went through, it went through a few different incarnations That's of right. timings because in the old days, there was no need for a late, late show because the way that the timings worked is the two bands that played played all the way to the end. Right. And the club opened later. The club opened at 8.40 in the evening and the music yeah, started yeah, at 9.40. You know, the, but we, we, we've been opening the doors at... It's 5.30 recently, but even from the mid-noughties, it was 6.30 doors, which meant that the main show and everything ran earlier. And then you had this space at the end of the 3 o'clock licence, and so the Late Late Show was created to fill this gap after the main act. We started it, I mean, when Sally Green and Michael Watt bought the club, and there was a whole new team involved, and I was installed by Leo as a house pianist, in those days, we had the house band. I would do a solo piano set, then it would be a trio set. Then the main band would go on. No, then we'd have another set with a singer. Um, and then the main band would go on about 9.15. They would just do one long set. Then we would do what was a late show. The late show that you're, I think you're referring to is more like the jazz jam element, which started off in the upstairs bar. And in 2008, 2009, mm. that got transferred to downstairs. And it was sort of a combination of the house band. And then we would get eventually get this jazz jam running on a Wednesday. And then uh, the house band, we changed that whole thing around and had different bands playing. And then about four or five years ago, we had different bands every night doing late shows. Alex Garnett would host these amazing jam sessions on Mondays and Tuesdays. And that has, again, changed since COVID. We've changed it a bit so that the jazz jam is on the Wednesdays, which is upstairs and downstairs. But yeah, I mean, it's been going at least 12 years, really. Amazing. And it's been host to some pretty legendary musicians and artists, stuff that's happened pretty organically, yeah, right? Yeah, because anybody could walk in on the late, you know. Yeah. The, the main show, it's ticketed, it's generally sold out, you can't just walk in. 
Whereas the late show, the doors you are do open. You do get um, occasional collaborate. I mean, I was playing a Corinne Bailey Ray got up and she sang Georgia on my mind and oh, things nice. like that. And Joss Stone, when she was used to come and hang out with Jeff Beck, she would often get up and sing. And sometimes... You mentioned Lady Gaga as well. It was a takeover. They basically called us up and said, we're coming to take over your late show. So we got advance notice and she came with a whole band. Yeah, but it's actually, what happened there was uh, Tony Bennett was playing at the Royal Albert Hall and he was ill one day. Yes. And then we got a phone call around 7pm to, to say, can we come and play Ronnie's? This was the tour manager. Well, it had happened it. before because Brian Newman, who's the trumpet player for Lady Gaga, is a jazz musician and he, well, he used to come to the late shows and he yeah. said, oh, and that's how it all happened. Right. Yeah. Um, and he called me initially and said, oh, can I just come and jam in the late show? And he said, yeah, absolutely fine like that, just talking to the trumpet player. And then the Tony Bennett thing got cancelled and then Brian just gave oh, the details right, of the right, club right. to the manager and that's how it happened. So the seed was sown with you and then it... Uh... <laughs> and she got yeah. a parking ticket, her gold, <laughs> her gold Rolls Royce. But I think the, my, my <laughs> favourite story that I wasn't there for and Paul wasn't there for and Miles wasn't there for was when Stevie Wonder got up with but the But there's someone the in the room band. who was there for that, who's Christian. Do you want to join us and regale us with the Stevie Wonder? <laughs> Um, yeah, so we'll talk about the late show with Stevie Wonder, and you're the only one who witnessed it and experienced it. I almost missed it. I was in the kitchen, and one of the waiter came rushing downstairs and asking for these nuts and olives that he had ordered. Okay. I said to him, like, yeah, chill, you know, it's, the guy is busy, he's going to get you olives and nuts, they're yeah. going to come. And he's like, no, I don't have time there for Stevie Wonder's wife. I was like, oh, is he is he here? I said, yeah, yeah, he's he's upstairs, he's playing from his seat. So we got the nurse and Olive rush upstairs and there he was playing from, uh, he was in the pit. So he was sat in the pit? He was sat in the pit. And he was with all of his, uh, all of his camp, all of his team. And uh, yeah, he was playing harmonica. The whole audience was shell-shocked. Yeah, of course. Everybody was like, okay, I can't believe this is happening. Was it packed? No, he had, I think it was 40 people all together. Imagine if you had left 10 minutes before well, he came We did. On. I had left. Oh, wow. Um, I'd gone and someone had called me, oh, you missed it. Nick yeah. had called me. So, um, so yeah, everybody just enjoyed it. And then he went on this, on the piano, played another track, um, which was you know, absolutely amazing. I think he played for another, another 10, 15 minutes. And then, yeah, he played and Alice Garnett said, yeah, let me, I think his name is Steven Wonderbar. That's how you call him. <laughs> And uh, he'd like to play some more, but that's all he knew. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and that was it. Amazing. And then, uh, yeah, amazing. Just, yeah, unf unforgettable. Brilliant. It's funny because a friend of mine met Stevie Wonder on a plane going from Detroit to L.A. She, she got on the plane and there was Stevie Wonder sitting. And that was what they talked about when he played at Ronnie Scott's. Oh, wow. She goes, oh, I, you played at Ronnie Scott's. And this was quite near at the time. And he goes, that's right. <laughs> and uh, she goes, and she's saying, this masquerade is over. How did you know? Like that. She says, it's my favourite song. Someone told me. Like that. And uh, they had a little chat about that song. Wow. It's reminded me that we had Sting get up impromptu once. when Chris, It wasn't in the late show. Chris Boaty was playing and Sting was in the audience with his wife. And um, I got a tap on the shoulder. I'm sitting in the mixing desk. And he sort of sneaked over. And he said, I'm going to get up and sing a song to Trudy. But Chris, he's going to play the trumpet and he's going to distract the audience, right? And Chris Boaty went out with his trumpet and he sort of walked around and out and went down into the pit where she was sitting. 
I think it was maybe somebody's birth. Maybe he's playing Happy Birthday to yeah, or something. Yeah. I feel, I no, might, it was Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. Okay, he sang right. my funny Valentine's. He, he sang my one and only love. Oh, my one and only love. Yeah. Um, and Sting, the old romantic. And he knew? came and said, "I'm going. <laughs> I'm going to sneak on." And then when Chris has distracted them, I'll be in the middle of the stage and I'll start singing. And uh, yeah, then he did. And basically, he got on stage right in the middle of the stage, and everybody is looking the other way, looking at Chris oh, Barty wow. playing trumpet at Trudy. And then suddenly there's this voice just going, the very thought of you makes my heart sing. And there's Sting in the middle of the stage and everybody's just going, oh. wow. so that was quite a moment. It was, it was funny because also prior to that happening, I was playing this in the support band, the opening set, and uh, we had a drummer with us who's more of a pop drummer. He, but he was playing a jazz set with us, but he suddenly started playing the most silly drums. It was mostly inappropriate. And uh, I looked at the bass player and I thought, why is he doing that? Because he'd obviously noticed that Sting was in the audience. So he was trying to impress Sting as if that Sting, he just sounded like a complete idiot, this drummer, suddenly going all these manic rock and roll fills. And when we were playing a jazz ballad, um, and needs to say Sting didn't talk to any of us. And I'm not surprised. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, do you, do you still get starstruck at all? If there's like on the, on the odd occasion or to have so many, Amazing musicians come in. It's just another day. I, at I stayed back to see Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones was Ooh, coming yeah. to present Alfredo Rodriguez, and I think the rest of the team had gone to the races or something on that day, it was on the Monday night. And uh, his uh, manager was there, and we wanted to get Quincy over to introduce uh, Alfredo Rodriguez, uh, but he was still eating his pasta in Little Italy. So what happened was we showtime was impending, and we. Got him over, but someone else behind him carried the bowl of pasta oh, over nice. Frist Street to come over to him. And when he sat down, there were people coming up to him. We call them grippers. Right. They say, oh, I've got, could you sign this album? You know, quite yeah, often yeah, sure. it was uh, Thriller, you know, something yeah, like yeah, Michael yeah. Jackson rather than all the other stuff he's done. I, I was certainly starstruck by that, you know, and uh, he came said a few words, which just, you know, from the, yeah, the yeah, guru, the, yeah, the, yeah, the guru, presence of real great man of music. Yeah, 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 Absolutely sure. fantastic. It's funny because a lot of the celebs, when they're here, they tend to get left alone by punters, but there are the odd exception. And um, when Al Jarreau was playing here, the Reverend Jesse Jackson came. Oh, wow. And was just sitting in, and it was unaware. Nobody knew it was him until Al said, hey, it's my old friend Jesse Jackson. And then in the interval, there was a queue of people who just wanted to sort of be blessed by the, by the Reverend. Al Jarreau, lo he, another lovely, lovely yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah a good rider thing for Al Jarreau. Yeah. It actually says on his rider, do not send the limousine. Mr. Jarreau travels with the band. Amazing. If you send the limousine, it will not be used. <laughs> he, had, he had a lovely history with a club. Because he came, this was his first gig in the UK, was in the 76 thereabouts, yeah. played in the club. Tony Maria, I think, was in support. It was uh, So he was there with a small group, came years later. He went, did all the big arenas, auditorium and so on. Um, and they have a fondness for the club. You know, Quincy Jones had that same fondness of Ronnie Scott. He'd met Ronnie Scott when Ronnie was running the club. Ronnie was in his band. Wow. In Paris. Oh, yes. When Quincy Jones, it was in the 60s, he studied with Nadia Boulanger, yeah. and uh, Ronnie was in his Paris big band. There's recordings of Ronnie playing on it. Oh, wow. Amazing. And there's a great photo of Quincy Jones, and as you walk in the club, mm. there's a wall, um, and on that wall it's enlarged newspaper cuttings that they all used to be in the back office on a board. And when the club was refurbished, they scanned the whole lot because they had to basically destroy <coughs> this wall. And there's a great picture of Quincy Jones outside the club, but in, in 1965. Wow. Yeah, him and Ronnie. Uh, yes, and does. Quincy coming off the plane. And, and Quincy actually uh, bent down to look at it when he uh, came oh, in. So nice. that was, with his bowl of pasta for you, uh, <laughs> followed him. <Yeah. laughs> 
the final echelons, I guess. Um, what's next for Ronnie Scott? So obviously, COVID has been navigated. I'm sure that was very challenging uh, in a lot of ways. What's next and how is Ronnie's going to continue kind of perpetuating jazz music in all its forms? It's a, it's an interesting one because, you know, as, as continuously jazz music t- changes, tastes change, audience members die off or they don't want to come late at night and different things change. Yeah. And the most important thing as a club, I think, is that you're aware of of this, like the Sunday lunches now are one of the most popular because a lot of people prefer to come out literally in the daytime. Um, yeah. You know, that's definitely a thing of COVID. Yeah. Hence the early shows. Done quite a few matinee performances right, on okay. Saturdays for certain artists. Just had a jazz ensemble win the uh, Mercury Prize. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, Ezra we, Collective. Yeah. We had Ezra here yeah. launching their album actually. Yeah. Amazing. Last year, wasn't it? So yes, that's right. They came back here and did an interview actually yesterday. We're very proud of them. Yeah, that, that was my next question. Obviously, with like the yeah. rise of the London jazz scene, there's a lot of younger bands who are really making a mark. Like Ezra Collective being a lot like of these the, guys the came through example. our late show. Yeah, jam sessions. You know, we know them from that. Yes, yeah, nurturing space for young talent, and the idea is to actually be relevant to current times. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. To, so a younger demographic. That's the audience of the future. That's yeah, been bringing people in. Early age, the late late shows work very well in that fashion. Yeah, because, yeah. Um, Is, are the late late shows always a younger crowds? Yeah, tend to be. Yes, they're, they're, they're out later, of course, and um, it's a cheaper door ticket, and the bands are kind of upbeat and funky and right, okay. all the rest of it. So that brings people into the club. They get to see live music. We do have DJs as well, but it's generally so the live Paul, music. Paul raises Quite. the average age a bit. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Smiles. <laughs> um, by a couple of years, maybe. So. Uh, that, that's good. It's about being relevant to all those different audiences. You know, we talk about the Sunday lights. That's more a family-oriented yeah, yeah, thing. Right. The main room, I guess, is going to be uh, mid-20s to mid-60s, that, that kind yeah, of demographic. Sure. I do a lot of shows out of the club in theatres and festivals yeah. with the house bands or house bands plus guests. We've got the jazz orchestra that does a similar thing, which is a big band. So in a sense, even though there isn't another physical Ronnie Scott's, the fact is that often the story of the club will be told in some of the yeah, shows yeah, that we do. Sure. And that could be, I mean, we've done it in New York, we've done it in on cruise ships, and we've done it in most of the theatres in England. Amazing. What's your rider? <laughs> do you know what? I, I got so fed up with them not putting a rider that I've just dragged everything off apart from water. Because, um, <laughs> you know, you often get salmon spread sandwiches that have been sitting in the heat for about six hours before because yeah. it's made by some person they just leave it in the dressing room and you get there and it's sort of moving oh nice um so we just said no let's just uh, <laughs> let's just go and get our own food and what are the gigs you're most excited about that are booked i have to look at the, the bookie sheet it's funny i always so much happening that uh it's a different you, band every night yeah, that's yeah, right. right yeah <laughs> and we've got nigel kennedy coming up doing a run we've got yeah. Steve Gadd coming up that should yeah, be quite exciting. Steve Gadd will be amazing yeah uh, Aaron Parks um, all sorts of good people coming up Josie James I believe is coming okay. in the Christmas period we had a, a very um, representative week one week we had uh, Hypnotic Brass starting oh, the week cool. so they were kind of wild and then we had Nick Barsh from Switzerland a fantastic pianist with Ronin uh, Carmen Lundy classic jazz vocalist so it's a whole spread of yeah, stuff yeah, as well yeah, as the late sure. eight shows so it's representing all the different aspects of the music. Amazing. And um, yeah, it is pretty good. But it's so intensive here in terms of work. And, and we're probably um, employing the most number of musicians in the world on a continual basis. Right, okay. And we're open up every day of the week, except for uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And then we have one day off for a staff party. You know, generally 
two to four bands playing at any one time in the club, you know, on, the, on a you know Monday to uh, Sunday, it's quite staggering the amount of throughput of uh, great musicians. Well, gents, thank you all so much for your time. It's been fascinating and informative and educational. And yeah, keep doing what you're doing because it's amazing. The club's very close to my heart. I've been coming here for a long time and hopefully for many more years. And yeah, brilliant stuff. Thank you so much.